0: What an honor it is to be speaking to you this morning. And if you've been tracking with us, um, we are continuing in our Who Me series. And during this series, we have been looking at different biblical characters in Scripture um, who God uses in profound and powerful ways. And this morning, we will be turning the spotlight onto some incredibly brave, drum roll please, some women. Yes, women in the house, women in the house. So finally, some women in the Who me series. So men, like Caleb said, my brothers in the Lord, I hope you don't mind if I direct much of this message to the women in the house, to my girls. Um, so, um, so bear with me, and I hope this message blesses you in some way, and hopefully you won't regret not watching the game <laughs> and being here instead. So before we dig into God's Word, let's pray. Oh God, I just pray that your spirit would fill this place, that your glory would fill this place. And God, as we open up your word, I pray that it would just come alive. Your word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And may it pierce us, God. And may it take root. So this morning, God, I just pray that you would have your way, have your way, have your way. In Jesus' precious name. Amen, amen. So, last year at Sirius Coffee, and for those of you who are new or visiting, Sirius Coffee is our women's ministry here at BBC. Um, Last year at Sirius Coffee, I showed a series of Super Bowl commercials. Um, Now, I know that sounds super American, but that's okay, because I am one. Um, And plus, I really love sports. I love American football. I love rugby, too, but I really love American football. Um, or gridiron, as Kiwis like to call it. And in the States, millions and millions of people tune in um, on their big widescreen, mega-screen TVs to watch the Super Bowl, um, which is the grand final game um, of the season. Um, There are Super Bowl parties, even here in New Zealand, um, where we expats gather together, we watch the game, eat all things American, and watch these two football teams battle it out. Now, in the States, it's a huge, huge deal. But here's what's fascinating to me, that what has become just as popular as the football game and the spectacular halftime show, believe it or not, what has become just as popular are the Super Bowl commercials. The Super Bowl ads are um, just as entertaining as the game. So a couple of years ago, I showed... Um, wait, sorry, a couple of years ago, always a company that produces feminine hygiene products uh, did a brilliant ad campaign called Fight Like a Girl, called Like a Girl. And in the ad, they asked older girls and a couple of guys what they think it means to do something like a girl. So they asked, um, so they asked a couple of guys and a couple girls, they said, so what do you think it means to run like a girl, to fight like a girl, to throw like a girl? And their attempts are really, really pathetic. But then they asked some really, really young girls, young girls who haven't been socialized yet, what they think it means to do something like a girl. And instead of me telling you about it, let me show you. Here's a short clip of just one of the ads. Have a look. Hi, Erin. Show me what it looks like to run like a girl. My hair. Show me what it looks like to fight like a girl. Now throw like a girl. Aw. So do you think you just insulted your sister? No. I mean, yeah, insulted girls, but not my sister. My name is Dakota, and I'm 10 years old. Show me what it looks like to run like a girl. Throw like a girl. Fight like a girl. What does it mean to you when I say run like a girl? It means run fast as you can. Isn't that great? That whole ad campaign is just precious. Um, Believe it or not, um, here's what was so interesting to me, that in this really masculine and macho time slot, this extraordinary narrative of female empowerment made its appearance. It was the highest-rated media campaign of the Super Bowl. It was not crafted by a beer or car company, but by a company selling feminine hygiene products. That is stunning, period. Period. (laughs) The women got that in the house. Uh, You're with me. Are you with me? Men are wishing they were at the game. You may not think this, girls, but the Bible paints a compelling picture of what it means for a woman to fight like a girl. And this is what we're looking at this morning. Some of us need to hear that message of that ad campaign and apply it to the way we think about our faith. And I'm so grateful to be part of a church that embraces and encourages women in ministry and women in leadership. And a while back, Craig and Michaela did an awesome message they tag-teamed a message on the role of women in the church on Sunday nights. It's an excellent message, and I would encourage you to go um, watch that um, on our website or on our Bible app. But over the years, as I have talked to and mentored women from other churches and other ministries, that hasn't always been their experience. And maybe for some of you today, because of your experience, you think that fighting the good fight and running the race is the work of Christian men, and that a woman's contribution is nice, but not necessary. Or maybe it felt like the Bible is a book about men to men and that women are an afterthought. Women are not just bystanders relegated to the sideline, but we are co-laborers in the fight of faith. Listen to Genesis 2. What was said after Adam was created? He's looking at all these animals parading by or none and none are looking like a good fit for him. And what had the Lord said? It is not good for man to be alone. So a woman was created for him. And we need to understand that that statement made in Genesis 2 is not just a reference to marriage. It is a reference to every sphere of life. It is not good for the man to be alone. Men and women are created to co-reign and co-labor in creation together. And what you contribute to the mission of the church, ladies, is not of secondary importance. So as we look at some incredibly brave and courageous women in God's word, I hope that we will reevaluate this morning what it means and what it looks like for a Christian woman to fight like a girl. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps or however you want to do that, please turn to Exodus 1, and it will also be up on the screen for you. So just real quick, Exodus is one of the epic stories of the Old Testament. Um, It has all these incredible pieces of a great story. There is a status quo that is met with a huge problem. There is a villain in this story, and the people of God are enslaved by this villain who is a genocidal king. And in the midst of their conflict, an unlikely hero arises. And he arises because, because God uses some brave women who dared to fight like a girl. So let's look at Exodus 1, starting in verse eight, which will set the scene for where we are. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Now this is significant because Joseph was highly favored in Egypt. He was second in command to the Pharaoh of his day, but that was a long time ago. So we are getting the message here that things have changed and the times have changed. And now we're going to see that the Israelites, rather than dwelling peacefully among the Egyptians, are going to be subjugated. They are going to be made slaves. And verse 9 says this Look, this is Pharaoh talking, said to his people, The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. You see, at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph's family migrates to Egypt. And the Bible says that there were 70 men who migrated. But by the time the Israelites leave Egypt, there are over 600,000 men. So you can see that the Lord has has dealt faithfully with the Israelites. And he's fulfilling his promise that he made to Abraham, that he would make his descendants as numerous as the grains of the sand and stars in the sky. And that is what's happening here, and it is freaking the Pharaoh out. So he says in verse 10, Come. We must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly, They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Can you hear the repetition of the words ruthless and harsh labor? Moses, who wrote the book of Exodus, wants us to understand that they were cruelly, brutally, and mercilessly oppressed. There were even those who had to make the bricks. Now, making bricks was considered the lowest of the low in Egyptian society. They had the hardest work, and it was the most menial of tasks. So, phase one of Pharaoh's attempt to keep these people under control is to severely oppress them um, with slavery. But it doesn't work. God continues to multiply them. So in verse 15, we see what phase two of Pharaoh's plan is. It says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua. When you are helping the Hebrew women during birth on the delivery stool, if you see that baby as a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. So what is phase two of Pharaoh's plan? It's genocide or infanticide. And what does he do? And here is our spotlight for this morning. He summons... Shifra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives. Now, these women are incredible, and the only ones named in this whole chapter. Shifra and Pua are not the only Hebrew midwives who serve the entire nation of Israel. They couldn't be, because remember, there are thousands of them now, and they're having babies left, right, and center. So Shifra and Pua were probably um, representatives of a guild of Hebrew, a, a, a guild of Hebrew midwives, And they were the ones who had to interact with Pharaoh. Now imagine being these two midwives, hearing Pharaoh say in verse 16, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see the baby is a boy or a son, kill him. And if it's a daughter, a girl, let her live. It's horrifying and unthinkable what Pharaoh is asking them to do. And what is implicit in what Pharaoh is saying here? What is he saying about the daughters of Israel? That the daughters are no threat to us, so kill the, kill the sons. But he doesn't just say that. What he's basically saying is, and make it look like an accident. It's too awful to contemplate how Pharaoh expects these midwives to do this, but think about what infant mortality was probably like in that day in history. As many babies were born, there were probably many babies who died in childbirth or were, um, or were stillborn at the time. So Pharaoh's first approach is to kill the Hebrew sons, make it look like an accident, and we can keep the daughters around because they aren't going to cause us any trouble at all. It's only the sons we need to worry about. So let's see what Shifra and Pua, how they respond to Pharaoh's evil command. The midwives, however feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told him to do. They let the boys live. What a stunning verse. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Incredible. Now, it's important to understand something about Pharaoh. In Egypt, Pharaoh was not like how we regard our prime minister, Pharaoh was worshipped like a god, and he had the power and life of life and death over these women. And now he has summoned them into his presence, and they have to tell him why they have not done what he has commanded them to do. Now let's see how these two girls are going to fight. And they respond this way. Is that verse 18? So the midwives, however, feared God, did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And when the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Next verse is, the midwives answered. The midwives answered. Let me do, I'm just lost in my notes. Hold on. The midwives answered, Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Isn't that a brilliant answer? I don't know if it's true or not. And scholars are kind of split on whether it's an outright lie or not. But here's what Pharaoh knows, and here's what we've been told in Scripture. The Israelites are having lots of babies. So it could be true. So I think it's a brilliant, brilliant answer. But let's see what God thinks of how um, the midwives answered Pharaoh. The next slide says this, verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. God was kind to the midwives. And why was he kind to them? Because the Hebrew midwives were more concerned with giving an account to God than they are to Pharaoh. Their motives and their action was to preserve life, even in the face of death, even their own death. And the Lord commends them for it because look what else God does for these midwives. Verse So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increasing became even numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Did you catch that? The midwives did not have families of their own at this point. And some scholars believe that midwives were women who were infertile in that culture, or perhaps unmarried. But what a beautiful image to have if you are a single woman that you can meaningfully serve and know that your importance to the church and the role that you can can take on doesn't begin when you get married or become a mother. By the way, Colin also preached a great message um, on Sunday nights on singleness, so you need to go and watch that too. And I just have to say, y'all are missing out if you don't come to Sunday nights because there's some great preaching going on, and he's on again tonight. So phase one and phase two of Pharaoh's evil plan is to control and oppress God's people, and it's not working. So what is phase three? What's phase three going to be? Verse 22 says this. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So what Pharaoh is saying here is that the Hebrew women are not going to cooperate with me. And so I'm going to say to the Egyptian people, now it's your responsibility. We are no longer going to cloak this or hide this. We're going to kill those baby boys outright. And the river Nile, which is a source of life for us, is now going to become an instrument of death for us. We will murder them outright, but let every daughter live. Why? Because daughters are not going to cause us any trouble at all. They are of no consequence. In fact, we could even intermarry with some of them because apparently they have vigorous stock in them. And we can use them and control these girls as slaves and servants. Kill the sons, but let the daughters live. But here's the thing. Pharaoh has dramatically underestimated, underestimated the sisterhood of the traveling midwives. He has underestimated the connection these midwives have with the women who are giving birth. And I don't know much about midwifery, but I, and I have never watched an episode of Call the Midwife. I can only talk from my own experience. I had the same amazing midwife for both of my girls' births. And she actually became like one of the family for a long time after that, before she moved overseas. Pharaoh has no appreciation for the bond that can happen between a woman who is giving birth and the person aiding the birth. He thinks that a midwife could give care to a woman over a period of seven or eight months, feel life moving inside her belly, and then when it's time for that child to be delivered that she will count it as nothing. And he thinks that she will fear him more than she will fear her God. He is dead wrong. He is dead wrong that the daughters pose no threat to him. And the fact is, because the midwives behave as they do, means that a baby boy called Moses will be born safely into the world. Amen? Look what happens next. Exodus 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. The three longest months of this mother's life, no doubt. But isn't it incredible how brave this Levite man and woman are to still covenant together and have a baby in light of what is happening in Egypt? Verse 7. But when she could hide him no longer, she placed, she got a pepperose basket for him and coated it with tar and pitched. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the banks of the Nile. And his sister stood at the distance to see what would happen to him. Can you catch how fraught the scene is? Notice that, that it doesn't say that his mother stood by to watch and see what would happen next. Imagine how this mother, this daughter of Israel, is feeling at this moment. If I keep him, he will die. But if I put him in a basket and place him in the reeds, at least I won't have to watch what happens next. It's unmanageable, girls, isn't it? Verse 5. Watch God work. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. Am I on the right one? Yep. She saw the basket among the reeds and said to her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby, and he was crying. And she said, this is one of the Hebrew babies. I will obey my father and do what I'm supposed to do. Is that what happens? No, that's not what happens. Check this out. She opened it and saw the baby, and he was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his, sister asked daughter, then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. Ha! Ah, don't you love what God just did there? Now Moses' mother is being paid a wage on Pharaoh's dime to nurse her own child. And she keeps him what seems for like quite a while. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. Isn't that amazing? So Moses stayed long enough in the home of of his Hebrew family, long enough that we find out later in the story that he is aware of his heritage. He knows about it. He values it. And there was time for his own mother and his own sister, his own family to gather around him to say, this is who you are. Why? All because Pharaoh believed that a daughter was no threat to his agenda. All because Pharaoh believed a weaker vessel version of womanhood in all the wrong ways. In this passage, we see five women in these passages. Five women behaving bravely. Now, Exodus is definitely the story of a strong deliverer. But before we see a picture of the strong deliverer, Moses, we see a picture of five very strong and brave daughters who are deliverers as well. Israel's first deliverer was not a man in a flowing robe with a streaming white beard and miraculous sign. Israel's first deliverers were women in average garb with streaming tears and a miraculous courage. May we be such women. Amen. And we can be, we can be, we can be strong and brave, even as the weaker vessel. Now, 1 Peter says this, In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. So, girls, what do you think that means? How are we weaker? Are we weaker intellectually? Are we weaker emotionally? No, we may process and display emotion and intellectually differently to a man, but it's not a weakness. It's a point of difference. But are we physically weaker? Yes. Yes, we are. Well, generally speaking, we are weaker physically than men. I say generally because I don't see too many men lining up to arm wrestle Valerie Adams. My not? No, that's not going to happen. So because we are physically weaker generally than men, we understand powerlessness intuitively in the way men do not. For example, girls, have you ever felt hyper aware of your surroundings when you are walking to your car at night, afraid that someone's going to jump out at you? I bet all of us have felt that way one time or another. So we understand powerlessness. And that understanding does something really great in us. It gives us eyes to see the underdog, eyes for the defenseless, and eyes for the marginalized. And here is a great Kiwi example of that. Who knows who this is? Say it loud. Kate Kate Shepard. Kate Shepard, along with other pioneering women, was the prominent leader of the fight to win the right for New Zealand women to vote. And does anybody know what year that was? <clears throat> check. The, I mean, it, the women got the right to vote in the U.S. in 1920. But check this out. On the 19th of December, 1893, the governor, Lord Glasgow, signed a new electoral act into law. And as a result of this landmark legislation, New Zealand became the first self-governing country in the world in which all women had the right to vote in parliamentary elections. How awesome is New Zealand? We should be so, so proud of that. And as a result of women being allowed to vote, there were better laws against domestic violence, child custody laws improved, women's health improved, and maternal fatalities and infant mortality rates dropped All these issues suddenly became to the table that had never been tabled before because brave suffragists like Kate Shepard dared to fight like a girl. And in closing, if we could have the worship team come up, please. Church, men and women, may we be people who fear God more than Pharaoh. I don't know who or what Pharaoh represents to you, and it will be different for all of us. It could be a boss it could even be the opinion of others. I don't know. But whatever it is, may we all humbly and with the holy fear and awe of our great God co-labor together, side by side, on our knees and fight the good fight of faith, fight for our marriages, fight for our children, and fight for our families and loved ones. And may we have eyes and brave hearts that fight for the marginalized outcast. And the vulnerable and whatever sphere of influence god calls you or places you in women daughters sisters the world needs you the world needs you to fight like a girl that god created you for so- <laughs>